Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. Good morning again. When I was in ninth grade, in ninth grade, a music teacher showed us this film. The film was called Amadeus, Amadeus. The film is set in 18th century Vienna and chronicles the relationship between court composer Antonio Salieri and you guessed it, his famous rival Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. When he was young, Salieri prayed fervently to God, ask God, please make me an amazing composer. He vowed to be faithful and chaste, and in exchange, God, he hoped, would make him a famous musician. So he sacrificed and invested time and energy. He gave up a lot of things, and he uh, ended up feeling a little frustrated because along came Mozart. Mozart was shallow and arrogant, according to Salieri. And guess where the story is going by the fact that you've probably heard of Mozart and not Salieri, unless we have any big Salieri fans in the house tonight. <laughs> Mozart was recognized and celebrated and created work that we still sing and listen to today. He was the kind of spectacular and celebrated musical talent that Salieri had prayed fervently to become, that he had tried bargaining with God to become. And the film opens up with Salieri contemplating the end of his life as he prepares to make a confession for his part in hastening Mozart's death. I hadn't thought about this film until recently when I was reading Glittering Vices that Pastor Eben mentioned last week. It's this book by a philosopher, Rebecca de Young. And de Young reminded me of this opening scene where the priest is coming in to receive this confession. And Salieri is uh, first fishing for some compliments to just, you know, make that connection. He said, oh, do you like music? And the priest kindly says, yes, I love music. I actually grew up in, in Vienna and, and I'm a big fan of music. And <laughs> Salieri says, oh, well, perhaps you'd like to hear something that I wrote. He goes over to the, what, the pianoforte, I guess, and then starts playing, starts playing. Do you know this one? The priest nods along. No, not that one. It's been a bit. I must not remember everything. So he goes on, plays, plays another, and then another. No, no, I don't know those. Salieri plays one more piece, and the priest is moved by it, starts swaying and singing along. Even after Salieri stops, he's still humming the tune. And he says, wow, you wrote that? No, that was Mozart. Though the priest assured Salieri that all people are equal in God's sight, Salieri could not or would not believe that to be true. Salieri was for most of his life trapped and destroyed by his own envy. Envy is the second of the vices that we are exploring in our Kermit, Kermit, current sermon. See, I should do a Kermit voice now, but I'm still working on that one. I can do a better Miss Piggy. Our current sermon series, Vices and Virtues, Vices and Virtues. As a reminder, in this series, we're exploring 
the seven capital vices and the corresponding virtues with the thesis that when our realities change, we must change our responses. So we, who are Christians, say our reality has changed. And so we're examining how our God-breathed desires, the root desires within us, the human desires that we need not be ashamed of, but instead, these desires can be pursued healthily, faithfully, even virtuously. Devices, after all, are just distortions of these root desires. So for this sermon series, we're inviting you to reflect on yourself, focusing more on the log in your own eye than the speck in your neighbor's. This is the time to look around and see who's the most envious person here, but instead to say, how has envy showed up in my life? Last week, Pastor Evan reminded us that we can take off our pride, our tendency to be self-seeking, and instead put on selflessness as we respond to the root desire for recognition and approval. As people of faith, we are called to take responsibility for our actions, confess the places we haven't got it right, and work together to become more like Christ. So today, we turn our attention to this vice of envy, the root desires that envy distorts, those desires for worth and honor, and the corresponding value, virtue of kindness. So let's begin with this vice of envy. To unpack the problem of envy, and we'll first explore what it is, and then how it shows up in our lives, and then what makes it so destructive. So what is envy? Italian friar, philosopher, and theologian Thomas Aquinas describes envy as sorrow for another's good. Sorrow for another's good. This makes the kind of envy that we are speaking about today a little different than um, just the experience of, of jealousy. It goes a, a step further. And because this book that we're in conversation with by uh, de Young, it's, it's written by a philosopher. And philosophers love to take words that you'd find in the, the thesaurus Synonyms, words that kind of are the same, and say how they're different. So we're going to do a little bit of that, but just like hang in with me on this as we're trying to get to the sense of what we're talking about with this vice of envy. De Young aims to explain envy by making connections and distinctions between envy, jealousy, covetousness, and greed. From her perspective, these are related, though not identical terms, at least as they're often used. Envy, like covetousness, focuses on something desirable that belongs to someone else, something that we don't have. So Salieri was covetous and envious of Mozart's fame and talent. It was something that he did not have. Greed is slightly different, as experiencing greed would mean that you not only want something like someone has, but you want more of it. So if you have two cookies. I don't just want two cookies. I want five cookies. I want all of the cookies, and it will not be satisfied even once I have that. That's the experience of greed. Envy is like covetousness, but goes in a different direction than greed, because it's not that I want more than what you have. I want what you have. You have the toy that I want to play with. Give it to me. We see that. I see that a lot somewhere. <laughs> can't tell you where. 
Envy, de Young further delineates, may be like covetousness in the sense that you might be focused on having that something for yourself, but it goes a bit further because envy at its essence is about having the object or circumstance because it shows something about your worth or your status, how you measure up to others. Comparison is the thief of joy, as the saying goes. And what makes envy so powerful, so much messier than just wanting to have a nice vacation or have the toys or gadgets that someone else does, what makes envy so powerful, it's about who we perceive we are and what we are worth. Because of this, Thomas Aquinas said that we tend not to be envious of people with whom we don't share a world. It's those people with whom we share a world that we're envious of. So you might every now and then look at the ultra-wealthy and think, wow, must be nice to be them. But you probably won't have that feeling of envy that is all-consuming in the same way that you might with someone who you see yourself as somehow like. So often, when we're afflicted by envy, we're thinking of our, our siblings or our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our friends, or frenemies. These people may come to mind more often when we think of enemy because, or of envy, because what they have could have been ours. So we've made our way through this like definitional uh, exploration here of envy. We might ask more practically, how does this show up in my life? What does it look like? And sometimes it does look like, hey, they have this one flower, so happy to get that one flower. And now you have this giant bouquet. It might be like that. Often, envy shows up like that, but other times, envy can look like grief. Seeing something that you don't have with someone else, and then you start to mourn the absence of it in your own life. A sense of sadness could appear, and that might be envy too. When we scroll on social media and think, see everybody having a great time, reminding us of our own dissatisfactions or disappointments, other times, envy can show up and look a little bit like joy, a cruel delight in someone else's misfortune. Though comparison is the thief of joy, envy can even give us a kind of false joy when someone who had what we want loses it. You dropped the cookie, served you right. American theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas wrote about envy that sometimes we know that we're experiencing it. We feel it. It's an uncomfortable feeling at times. We feel those waves of jealousy that consume us. But other times, as is the case with so many vices, we deceive ourselves into thinking that our envy is justified, even good, or not there at all. In fact, that's what makes envy so destructive Envy gets in the way of truth-telling about ourselves, about our circumstances, about the world around us. I forget that I had this flower after all. The Apostle Paul thought envy was harmful to the church for both individuals in the church and the structures of the church, all the structures that we build and participate in. We read from Paul in Galatians 5.26 that Christians should not become conceited, competing against one another or envying one another, Envy has the power to destroy us from the inside out. James 3, 15 through 16 says that wherever there is envy, there will be disorder 
and wickedness of every kind. Envy destroys individuals by robbing us of our opportunities for joy and gratitude, convincing us that we can only be worthy if someone else is not, or if we're more worthy than them. Envy is a force of destruction for a community because it is antithetical to neighborliness, to kindness, to trust, and to love, the things that are the foundation of a community like a church. Envy takes our desire for meaning and worth and purpose and distorts it so that we cannot even experience those things. That's one of the worst parts about it, is that we're trying to pursue those things that we need and we're doing it in a way that we think will help and it is the thing that now gets in the way of pursuing that root desire. So let's explore that root desire a bit more as well, our desires for worth and honor. Hauerwas explains that envy is a way of seeing the world, and it tempts us to think that our differences are threats or diminishments. Envy is a belittling vice that way. Envy something at the same time that we all experience, though there are two main groups of people who tend to be more predisposed to be consumed by envy. Aquinas argued that those two groups are one, those who are seeking honor, those who want to be known. Think of Salieri, God make me a star. <laughs> people like that or also those who are faint-hearted, according to Aquinas. These are people who actually don't feel that great about themselves. I feel that I'm not worthy. I, everyone else seems to be doing better than me. And then we start to think that other people's successes are our failures, which probably those two groups could be any of us at any point in our lives. In either case, envy is this misguided response to that root desire for worthiness. Envy, then, is about our, our ideas of deservedness, what we think we or others deserve. A lot of American discourse is about what we deserve. It's also a framework of duality, meaning one or the other kind of thinking. When we're envious, we think there are the deserving and the undeserving the winners and the losers, the best and the worst. And there's only so much that go around. This is when we think that happiness is like pie. So if you have some, there's less for me. Now we're thinking of cookies and pie. We have to have brunch afterwards or something, but we do have brunch afterwards. That was the joke. So suppose we find ourselves in this predicament, unsure of how to know that deep in our chest that we are worthy that we're enough, that we matter. What if we're like that? What if we can't accept that reality? What if, as Aquinas understood, pride leads to vainglory and vainglory leads to envy? How do we rid ourselves, as 1 Peter 2.1 says, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and slander? What's the solution? What is the thing that we can put on instead of just taking off envy? Now what do we do? Well, I think what we might do first is turn to the words of Jesus. How does Jesus say to handle this? Or at least what are some words that might point us in the right direction when we pursue and healthily engage our root desires, our good desires for worthiness as people of faith 
we turn to these words of Jesus. And according to the Gospel of Matthew, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, put them in their place, they gathered together, and one of them was a lawyer and asked this question to test Jesus. Teacher, the lawyer, lawyer asks, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So hearing this good news, what does this mean when we try to take off envy we need to put on love or kindness or loving kindness is a word that's often used. In the instance of envy, we need to specifically channel that love into our neighbor because God loves us and our neighbor too. Love for us is what motivates our kindness. We could easily think, when we think about the virtue of kindness, of how so often we might think of politeness or cordiality, or even civility. But these things for the Christian, while good and perhaps functions of our kindness, are not our motivation, not our source. The source of any kindness that we offer to others is that God loves us. God's love, love is the motivating factor of our kindness. It's the fuel, it's the source. And that's why we're called to at least try <laughs> Try to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is why so often when we take communion, we do so in a circle. It's our tradition. And often we'll say something um, to remind us about God's love and how God's love binds us together. We even sing, blessed be the tie that binds. That God loves us all the same, we might say. No more, no less than anybody else. That's why we stand in the circle and we leave room for more because there's always room for more at God's table because God's love isn't pie. To love our neighbors as ourselves, however, assumes something else. <laughs> it assumes that we love ourselves. In your own life, and certainly in church history, the love of self could be conflated with vainglory. And so there's this potential pitfall that in our selflessness that we talked about last week, that might become overly self-deprecating to the point of self-loathing, an inability to accept oneself as worthy of God's love. So if we're thinking action steps here, if you're navigating envy, perhaps the first place to start is learning to see yourself as God sees you, as beloved and beautiful and a recipient of God's grace. Grace, by the way, is an antidote to this misguided notion of deservedness that we talked about before. Because grace takes deservedness out of the equation altogether. Grace is not something we can earn. You don't earn your way into God's affection. It's impossible. And it's also a gift. You don't earn a gift, at least not a good one, freely given to all who will receive it. Grace points to our human need for unconditional love. You may have had some experience in your life that led you to believe that you had to earn your right to exist or earn your right for safety or take care of somebody else first. Earning the love and approval of others, but God's not like that. 
No matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, God loves you and accepts you and has gifted you in ways that can be a blessing to yourself and to others, which means it's not a competition. Maybe on game night coming up, a competition, but not God's love. The church is set up in such a way that all are needed. Even when we talk about the gifts of the church, the gifts of the Spirit, they are varied and diverse for all kinds of people. Everybody has been gifted something. We need you on the team. Everything that matters, we have plenty of. Abundantly more, we sang. Because the crowns that we try to create and put on in this life are just illusions. Viewing life in this way means that we can actually be better attuned to the suffering of others. And it also allows us to relax a little bit, pointing to the goodness of God with all that we do. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 reminds us that if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. So if your welfare is connected to mine, then I support you when you're struggling. And I celebrate you when things are going well. And you do the same for me. That's the beauty of being a part of a church. It's the beauty of investing in a faith community is you get to see that play out in real time in the ups and downs and the highs and lows of life. So we replace envy with our love, our kindness, love being the definitive marker of Christian faith. And so Paul writes that love is not envious and we can know that our worth is made clear by God by reading Colossians 3.12 through 13, which says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, because of who you are, because of God and who God has said you to be, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. My favorite verse may be in the Bible. Bear with one another. Because <laughs> sometimes that's what we have to do. Bear with me. I'm a work in progress. If anyone has a complaint against one another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So here's the challenge of the week for you. Practice seeking someone else's good this week, countering envy's malicious inclinations, but do it in a way that no one knows. Commit yourself to one or more acts of quiet, small goodness this week. If you're feeling faint-hearted though, I have a caveat for you. Maybe you are doubting your own worthiness so maybe that act of goodness needs to go to you first. And then your follow-up is to find someone else too. Remind yourself and remind those around you that God has said you matter, you belong, and that you're enough. If you're struggling because you're focusing too much on the validation of others to prove your worthiness, perhaps you might commit to seeking one another's good quietly looking upon them the way that Christ looks upon you. In the story of the rich young ruler, which we won't go into right now, I just want to tell you one of my favorite, other favorite parts of this, where the, the man is, saying, is uh, starting to ask all these questions to God, asking uh, uh, about what he needs to do, and is, is this man, and is it enough, God? Is it enough, these things that I'm doing? And what, God's, what Jesus does before speaking <laughs> looks at the man and loves him, 
And so much of our lives could be a lot better, I think, if we would stop, look, and love them the way that Christ does, the way that Christ looks lovingly upon each of us. So to conclude, why does this even matter that we make such an attempt? What difference will it make? It can seem kind of uh, difficult to just stop being jealous and trying to channel this energy in some way, but first I would say that envy is a barrier to the best of what life has to offer you, a life that Jesus is inviting you into, a life that is abundantly more. And if you can, in small ways at first, and maybe big ways later, be freed from this vice of envy, you can experience the fulfillment of our collective need to know that we matter and to trust that when we sing that song, Jesus loves me as children or as adults, that we believe it to be not only true, but sufficient enough truth, enough truth to build a life on. I think one of the most annoying and challenging and central parts of being a Christian is how we deal with envy and our enemies something we say often but don't necessarily know how to do. And so I remind you again from uh, Luke chapter 6, Jesus' words on envy. This is the message translation. Jesus' words paraphrased by Eugene Peterson. He writes, To you who are ready for the truth, you have to be ready for the truth, I say this, love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer for that person. No more payback. Live generously. Here's a simple rule of thumb for our behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, and then grab the initiative and do it for them. If you only love the lovable, do you expect a pat on the back? Run-of-the-mill sinners do that. If you only help those who help you, do you expect a medal? Garden variety sinners do that. If you only give for what you hope to get out of it. Do you think that that's charity? The stingiest of pawnbrokers do that. I tell you, love your enemies, I promise. Or help and give without expecting in return, you'll never, I promise, regret it. Live out this God-created identity the way that God lives toward us, generously and graciously, even when we're at our worst, our God is kind. You, God's beloved, be kind. Lastly, I'll conclude with the words of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who we've mentioned and celebrate not only him, but all of the people who have been a part of this pursuit of justice in the name of God. Envy, writes Dr. King, envy, jealousy, a lack of self-confidence, a feeling of insecurity, and a haunting sense of inferiority are all rooted in fear. We do not envy people and then fear them. First, we fear them, and subsequently, we become jealous of them. Is there a cure for these annoying fears that pervert our personal lives? Yes, a deep and abiding commitment to the way of love. Perfect love casteth out fear. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. 
May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.